This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 15, The Battle of Leuctra. is known for little more than this famous battle in Greek history. Leuctra can be found just under 10 kilometres northwest of the more famous settlement of Plataea, the base of the polis, who offered more support than anyone to the Athenians when they resisted the Achaemenid Persian invasion of Attica at the Battle of Marathon in 490. BCE. Plataea would be the site of its own battle just 11 years later when an allied Greek army would march to meet the Achaemenid Persians and defeat them at the Battle of Plataea to expel them from the Balkan Peninsula. Leuctra lies on the road from Plataea to Thespiae the home of the Thespians, who provided manpower to the futile cause of King Leonidas and the 300 Spartans who bravely fought and lost in the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BCE. This entire area of the Balkan Peninsula is called Boeotia and it acts as a gateway from the north to access the Attica Peninsula, where we find the city of Athens, and the Isthmus of Corinth, which leads to the Peloponnese. The biggest Boeotian city was Thebes, and Thebes could have been settled from Mycenaean times due to the archaeological evidence discovered in the region. It is possible that after the late Bronze Age collapse, that Dorian migration from the north brought the region under their control after the Mycenaeans completely disappeared, taking all of their Linear B writing script with them and leaving us with no story about what exactly happened. Athens emerged as an influential polis throughout the peninsula of Attica and the area of Boeotia was flanked to its west by Phocis. To the south, the polis of Corinth, situated on its isthmus. As a region, Boeotia would become mixed up in the affairs of larger polis, such as Athens and Sparta, and the various cities would constantly be having their loyalties tested due to the strategical location of Boeotia being central to Greek politics and conflicts. Sparta Sparta, as we should now be aware, was the dominant city of the Peloponnese, which is the large land mass at the far south of the Balkan Peninsula. The Peloponnese was evidently populated during the Mycenaean period. Evidence of people movements 
after the late Bronze Age collapse is scant, and much of the retrospective written records are steeped in mythology which makes it questionable. The most popular theory is that the Peloponnese was populated after the Mycenaean period by a group of people called the Dorians, who may have migrated by land or sea, or both, from the north. Two groups of two villages emerged in the area that would become the nucleus of the Spartan polis, which would actually be called Lacedaemonia, but for ease of comprehension we call it Sparta. It's this dual setup that may have led to there being two Spartan kings within their traditional political makeup. It is speculated that these settlements emerged thanks to the population of the Dorians. These original Spartans didn't fortify their settlements due to the protection that the natural mountainous landscape gave them. The Spartans tried to expand their sphere of influence by stretching their boundaries and attempting to dominate neighbouring populations. An iconic conflict with one of their neighbours occurred in the 8th century BCE. They would invade the territory of Messenia to their west, conquering the land and subjugating the population. The Spartan success in both military offence and defence was due to a high concentration of wealth and energy being invested into the state army, and after the successful defeat of the Messenians, the Spartans would use their population as their slaves, mainly for agricultural purposes, and this would create resource by which the Spartans could further invest in their military forces. The slaves would be referred to as the Helots and would develop a strong historical identity. Sparta's dominance of their local area would lead to the formation of the Peloponnesian League, a league of city-states or polis as they are otherwise known, which would have a political alliance but which was dominated by the Spartans. Other than this Peloponnesian League, the Spartans would show very little in the way of imperial ambition otherwise, only becoming involved in foreign affairs when it suited them and when it was necessary. At the end of the 6th century BCE, Sparta would be the most powerful polis of ancient Greece, rivalled only by Athens with their strong naval force. Sparta would try to influence who the Athenian rulers were by offering military assistance. This was certainly not an invasion, but more an interference. The 5th century BCE was very eventful for Sparta. The Achaemenid Persians invaded Greek lands and the Spartans were initially reluctant, but ultimately obliged to get involved. The Persians didn't reach Peloponnesian lands, but the Spartans would stand shoulder to shoulder with their Hellenic rivals, the Athenians, Spartan land forces coupled with Athenian naval forces provided an irresistible combination and the Persians were expelled. After this success the Spartans would withdraw from the now unnecessary alliance with the Athenians and the Athenians would then expand their own area of influence with the formation of the Delian League of Aegean Poles, which could be perceived as a rival to the Peloponnesian League. This would heighten suspicions between Sparta and Athens, 
who were each concerned about how powerful and influential each other were, and led to tensions over disputes throughout the Greek lands. Those helots that we mentioned earlier, the slave class of Sparta, had always been treated badly by their Spartan masters, but they never had the ability to challenge their Spartan masters, who were too powerful to take on. When an earthquake rocked Sparta in 464 BCE, the helots saw an opportunity to rebel. The Athenians would initially offer assistance to the Spartans to put down their slaves, but the Spartans ultimately rejected this help, which was perceived as an insult by Athens. As such, the Athenians resettled many helots at a location called now Pactos, at the strategically important north coast of the Gulf of Corinth. Tensions between Sparta and Athens escalated, and the latter half of the 5th century BCE was full of conflict between the two poles and their extended influences, the Peloponnesian League and the Delian League. Ultimately, the gods of fortune smiled on the Spartans and through a combination of Spartan discipline and Athenian indiscipline, the Spartans would come out on top in the Peloponnesian War. Athens surrendered to the Spartans. The Athenian democracy was replaced by a pro-Spartan oligarchy called the Thirty Tyrants. Boeotian League We mentioned that the Boeotian Poles and their area of influence stretched across the Balkan Peninsula, effectively creating a land barrier between Attica and the Peloponnese to the south, and the Greek Poles to the north, that can be generally regarded as the ones that were more directly affected by the politics of Thessaly, the region of Poles in the middle of the modern-day country of Greece, with Macedonia to its north. It was because of its geographical location as a natural land barrier to the south that Themistocles chose this as the defensive position that would result in the Battle of Thermopylae, which saw Sparta and Athens attempt to resist the advance of the Achaemenid Persians. Having the support of the Boeotians was quite important to both Sparta and Athens, and we can see signs of this throughout Boeotian history. Traditionally, the most influential and powerful polis in Boeotia was Thebes. But we have also mentioned other Boeotian polis during this podcast series, such as Thespiae and Plataea. We don't really know anything about the formation of the Boeotian League, but we could realistically consider it likely that Thebes would have created a sphere of influence over the lesser polis, in a very similar way that the Spartans did in the Peloponnese and that it was certainly in existence by the 6th century BCE. The Thebans would have been concerned about the growth of Athens and especially when the Plataeans, a Boeotian polis, pledged to help Athens when the Achaemenid Persians invaded them in 490 BCE. As such, the Thebans would actually support the second Persian invasion in 480 BCE, which would actually put the Thebans into direct conflict with the Spartans as well as the Athenians. 
so this was a dangerous spot for Thebes who had no option but to pick between Achaemenid Persia and allied Greece, which must have been an impossible decision. Ultimately, when the Greeks expelled the Persians, Thebes was punished for its part in the episode and was prevented from heading the Boeotian League. However, Thebes was still a powerful polis, so it would only be a matter of time before it would become an important player in Greek politics once again. After the Spartan earthquake in 464 BCE, which was something we mentioned earlier in this podcast episode, the Spartans would assist the polis of Doris, which was being invaded by Phocis, by sending their army north into Boeotia. And they wouldn't have been able to do this without the support of the Boeotians. This led to the Athenians trying to entrap the Spartan army by cutting off their route back to the Peloponnese, leading to the bitter and bloody Battle of Tanagra, which we discussed in episode 13. After the Spartans managed to avoid defeat, the Athenians would quickly subjugate the Boeotians by defeating them at the Battle of Oenophyta, compromising the Spartan-Boeotian tactical alliance. The Boeotians were never willing allies of the Athenians, and even though they were also wary of the Spartans, they would at least share a common opposition to Athens. So when the Peloponnesian Wars were in full swing, it should come as no surprise that the Boeotians would support the Spartans and engage the Athenians in battle whenever necessary. The most notable display of Theban military ability was demonstrated when the Athenians attempted to invade Boeotia in 424 BCE, but were defeated at the Battle of Delium. After Athens surrendered to the Spartans in 404 BCE, there was no reason for the Boeotians to continue to support Sparta, as the primary aim of the Boeotians was to suppress Athenian imperialism, and that job was completed. When Sparta entered minor military campaigns after the Peloponnesian War, both Thebes and Corinth, another very powerful Spartan ally during the Peloponnesian War, refused to be involved. The Achaemenid Persians had also supported the Spartan cause in the Peloponnesian War and this support was likely buoyed by the fact that Persia would be able to reclaim the Ionian possessions which Athens had traditionally tried to claim for itself. So after the Peloponnesian War was over, Sparta would now believe that it should have control of Ionia. However, when the Spartans decided to embark on a campaign to Ionia, both Thebes and Corinth chose not to get involved once again. It was clear that Thebes and the Boeotian League and Corinth both had a clear desire to distance themselves completely from the Spartans, fearing that they would now try to dominate all the Greek lands in a similar way to the Athenians before them. When the Thebans invaded Phocis in an attempt to assist the defence of Locrian territory, Phocis turned to Sparta for assistance. Upon learning of Sparta's intention to support Phocis, the Thebans 
did something previously unthinkable and approached the Athenians for support. The Athenians pledged their support. Despite the might and reputation of the Spartans, they were unable to defeat the Thebans at the Battle of Haliartus in 395 BCE, and so they returned to the Peloponnese like a wounded animal, determined to come back and punish the Thebans. The Corinthians decided to pledge their support to the Boeotians under the command of Thebes, and what we historically call the Corinthian Wars were underway. The Corinthian Wars So all of those who stood alongside Spartan during its Peloponnesian War with Athens now stood against her and her expansionist attitude. An attitude which was unusual for the Spartans but possibly one it felt it deserved after spending so much to win victory against the Athenians. The coalition of Spartan enemies felt that it was time to act. Thebes was desperate to keep Sparta out of Boeotia. Persia feared Spartan ambitions in Ionia with a view to aiding a coup on the Persian throne. Athens wanted to avenge the crushing defeat of the Peloponnesian War. Corinth was weakened by the Peloponnesian War and the Spartans offered them no support which pushed them into the arms of Argos who had always hated their Peloponnesian neighbours, the Spartans. When the Corinthian War started, the Spartans unsurprisingly faced revolts from within, from the Helots, who were never treated as Spartan citizens and actively made to feel inferior. This is why the Spartans, as powerful as they were, would never find it easy to dominate Greek lands and it was a similar scenario to the Athenians, some years earlier. There were just too many other powerful nations that needed to protect their own interests. As a result, tough decisions were constantly having to be made. Does a nation sit still in the hope of being left alone, but in fear of another's power and desire to destroy its foreign interests, and worse still, a direct invasion? Was the best form of defence that of attack? where it would be a race to control trade routes and lands of resource before your rival, with the potential of war being the outcome. Historians can find it easy to blame nations for conflicts and point the finger, but these nations did not have the benefit of our hindsight, and we certainly do not have to live in fear of the wrong choice, like these ancient societies. Each nation was acting out of what they felt was necessary to preserve their own survival. With so much against the Spartans, it should come as no surprise to learn that they were prevented from making any progress during this conflict. Athens was the polis that saw an opportunity to restore some former glory. Its defeat in the Peloponnesian War saw the Delian League disbanded but Athens would attempt to bring some of the Aegean polis into its sphere of influence once more. This turned out to be a mistake, and the Persians now perceived Athens 
as the threat and turned its allegiance to the Spartans to protect its own interests. This meant that Sparta took control of the Hellespont with relative ease and prevented Athens from gaining any kind of power base by starving the city of resource from that route. Everyone became tired of the conflict. The Spartans definitely did not want to be at war and was often requesting a peace treaty. This would happen after eight years of conflict in the year 387 BCE. Many of the Greek states of both the Balkan Peninsula and the Aegean Sea were made autonomous and any leagues of nations such as the Boeotian League and the Corinthian Argolid Alliance was disbanded. Athens was denied any power of influence over anything other than itself. The Ionians would remain autonomous loosely under the hegemony of Persia and likewise for many Balkan cities autonomous with the Spartans assigned as guardians of the peace. Epaminondas It is difficult to know whether Epaminondas was in any way involved in the Corinthian War. We don't know much about his early life, but we can feel confident that he was born into the Theban aristocracy. If he wasn't involved in the Corinthian War, then it may have been that he was just too young. But we do know that it was likely to be around the end of the Corinthian War that Epaminondas was coming of age. Sources tell us that Epaminondas was trained from a young age for combat, with clear intention of being an important part of the Theban military. Thebes had been left wounded by the Corinthian War, robbed of its hegemony over the Boeotian League. Further to this, Sparta would enter Thebes and install a pro-Spartan government. Many Thebans headed straight to Athens, but Epaminondas remained in Thebes. Epaminondas played an important part in rallying up young Theban soldiers for what would ultimately turn out to be an anti-Spartan coup of Thebes. Cleombrotus I Once again, we know very little about Cleombrotus I. He became the Agiad king of Sparta, succeeding his own brother in the year 380 BCE. When the Spartans heard that the Thebans had staged a coup and had overthrown the pro-Spartan government, Cleombrotus led an army to Thebes, but ultimately there was no engagement due to the refusal of the Thebans. The Spartans would eventually leave Thebes and so Thebes took advantage of the respite to reclaim their lost power by reconstituting a new version of the Boeotian League. We cannot be entirely sure how much of a direct role Cleombrotus took with the repeated military excursions to Boeotia throughout the 370s BCE. 
but we do know that Thebes had managed to unite the Boeotians into a well-structured political entity, with Epaminondas now serving as a Beatarch, one of the seven generals of the Boeotian League. Prelude to the Battle It was now 371 BCE, and Sparta had had enough of Theban ambitions within Boeotia. Athens also apparently seemed to be unnerved by the Theban attitude, as they appeared to be imposing themselves on less powerful Boeotian polis, such as Plataea, a polis that had periodically enjoyed a closer relationship with the Athenians in the past. So the Spartan king, Cleombrotus I, decided to take an army into Boeotia and put the Thebans in their place, thus restoring the calm and balanced status of the Balkan Peninsula that resulted from the Corinthian War. Cleombrotus gathered an army of around 10,000 hoplites, mainly Spartans, but also from other polis loyal to Sparta. Despite Boeotia being rather an undulating terrain, the Thebans were much more adept at horsemanship, so they had a trained cavalry. Along with their own highly respected hoplite army, they had a number of skirmishers called peltasts. We're also aware of Theban elite forces called the Sacred Band of Thebes. These men are particularly interesting as we see a relationship to things already mentioned during the podcast series. Other nations had special elite forces such as the Achaemenids and their immortals. However, the Sacred Band of Thebes was made up of 150 couples. These couples shared homosexual relationships, which is believed to have created an emotional bond which would strengthen the fighting spirit of these men, who would fight for themselves and the man they loved. We came across this when talking of two men called the Tyrannicides, who murdered the Athenian tyrant Hipparchus back in the 6th century BCE, as described in episode 8. The Spartans themselves also supported this kind of male bonding within the military too. However, it is worth noting that the Spartans themselves were also not without cavalry on this occasion. By this time in history, the cavalry that was something that had not developed in the Greek military of the south of the Balkan Peninsula just 150 years earlier was now something that had been incorporated. 400 Spartan royal guards accompanied Cleombrotus, as well as Spartan peltasts. So the Thebans, for all of their variety, did not have anything in particular that the Spartans didn't have. So in a battle of this scale, the Spartans seemed as formidable as ever. The Battle of Leuctra One of the contemporary sources of written information about the battle was written by the Athenian soldier and historian Xenophon. After some initial inconclusive exchanges between the skirmishers and the cavalry of both armies, 
it would soon become time for the phalanxes of both sides to engage. However, it is important to discuss the nature of the phalanx, as this would be a big factor in this battle. Due to the manner in which the phalanx holds its shields and spears, it is natural for its advance as a unit of men to move slightly to one side instead of directly forwards. Thucydides was one of the first commentators to speak of this right-hand drift of phalanxes, so it was a well-known fact. The Spartans would ensure for that reason that its best hoplites were on the right wing of the phalanx, which stood around 12 rows deep and led by King Cleombrotus. If you recall, the idea of a phalanx is that a row of men would be tightly packed in an organised formation with a shield wall at the front, using spears to attack. If a man was lost at the front of the phalanx, the man behind would move directly to the front, so it was a highly disciplined military operation that worked together as a unit, as opposed to the more individual nature of the skirmishers. When you consider how highly trained and genetically impressive that the Spartan hoplites were, then you can consider that the Spartan army, with its superior numbers, had the edge. However, the Theban commander, Epaminondas, would do something extremely bizarre. He would create a phalanx on his left wing that was unusually narrow, but was an incredible 50 rows deep. It was madness when you consider how much danger there would be that the Spartan left wing could potentially advance and attack the deep phalanx from the side, therefore attacking it from two angles. However, where the elite troops would normally be placed at the head of the right-hand phalanx in the traditional way that the Spartans had done, the Thebans placed theirs at the head of the deep phalanx on the left. This was highly unconventional. The Spartans seemed to be very disorientated by the strange neighbour of this Theban offensive, with the sacred band of Thebes at the head of the 50 row deep left-hand phalanx. At least this would mean that the weaker Spartan left wing might stand a chance of breaking down the right-hand side of the Boeotian phalanxes, which were made up of Boeotian allied infantry, likely to be of a comparatively low standard and working in inferior numbers. However, the right-hand Boeotian phalanxes were also in an unusually staggered formation, which stretched the Spartan left wing out making it vulnerable to attack. The Spartan left wing was not fast enough to compromise their Boeotian opponents before the sacred band of Thebes had started causing serious damage to the Spartan elite hoplite phalanx, containing the Spartan king, Cleombrotus. A thousand Spartan men were slaughtered at the head of the Spartan right wing, 
including many elite soldiers and King Leombratus himself. This was a decisive blow for the Spartans, who knew that they had been incredibly defeated. They called for a halt to the battle, acknowledging their defeat to the Boeotians. Aftermath. The Peloponnesians headed back to the Peloponnese with a strange sense of concern that their bonds to Sparta were almost worthless. As the traditional reputation for the Spartan land army being the superior army of Greek lands was now a myth. The Thebans celebrated their famous victory. In a land which 50 years previous was witnessing the culmination of centuries of development as the two mightiest nations of Greek lands clashed when Sparta battled with Athens, it was neither polis that was the dominant nation of Greek lands now. The Spartans would never know the levels of reputation and influence that they had had ever again. The glory of both Sparta and Athens was now a historical story. Thus, the Thebans would have more victories after this one, and the map of Greece had irreversibly changed. Historians argue about whether the deep and narrow opposite flank phalanx tactic was a stroke of tactical genius by Epaminondas, or whether it was just a hurried decision in the heat of battle. It is difficult to see this as anything other than pre-planned in my eyes, but we just don't know for sure. What we do know is that this tactic was used again at future battles by different commanders, and this does point towards this being a considered approach by Epaminondas. Mainly Epaminondas is celebrated and acknowledged as one of the greatest men of ancient Greece due to his astonishing achievements. Epaminondas launched campaigns into Sparta after the Battle of Leuctra in order to debilitate the Spartans to the point of no return. The state of Messenia was recreated. Now if you remember, this was the state that had been destroyed by the Spartans back in the 8th century BCE and the origins of the population of Helots in the Spartan realm. Now these Helots had been emancipated and granted their homelands back and Epaminondas was accredited for this great and noble act. Epaminondas would relentlessly continue his campaigns to uphold Theban dominance right up until 362 BCE, when on campaign to the Peloponnese, he was mortally wounded at the Battle of Mantinea. It was during the 360s in Thebes that a young man who was the son of the Macedonian king Amintas III was being held captive. During this young man's captivity, he would be trained and educated, and would also have great knowledge of the Theban victory at the Battle of Leuctra, 
and the incredible tactics of Epaminondas. The young man, son of a Macedonian king, would never forget what he had learned. His name was Philip. So there you have it, the end of another episode and an episode which really shows how much Greece is changing now from what was uh, the 5th century BCE where you had those two great uh, poles, Sparta and Athens and now things have changed completely and anyone that knows anything about Greek history any experts on Greek history will know exactly what's coming after this So next week, we're actually going to take a little bit of a sideways step. There is a lot to consider when looking at this period of Greek history. It's not just about the political relationships between the polis. There was a lot going on culturally in Greece. So we're going to explore that at length next week. It's going to be a very interesting episode, something a little bit different. And uh, we're going to look a lot at the arts of Greece as well, the the spirituality and the arts of Greece. So I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's podcast episode and I hope that you are genuinely enjoying uh, volume three of the podcast on the classical world. Uh, there's rather a lot of uh, Greek history and then to follow this there'll be a lot to do with the Romans as well. That's very much probably the most prominent part of this Uh, of this period in history however we do need to get the Greeks covered because they had so much influence over Roman history so these uh, these episodes are really vital and we've probably got about seven more episodes of ancient Greece left to go Uh, but before we venture into Rome after that we're going to have a couple of special episodes that have been commissioned by Um, by one or two people who have made uh, significant contributions towards the upkeep of the podcast. So we're going to have a couple of special episodes, something we've not tried before at the History of the World podcast. So looking forward to those, looking forward to some random topics, something completely off the chart in terms of what we're doing at the moment. So can't wait for that. And then after that, we'll be resuming um, the the chronology by looking at the Romans. Now, those who have commissioned uh, special episodes from the History of the World podcast have done so by becoming members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati, uh, which are the people who have made significant contributions towards the upkeep of the podcast. And we've got two new members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati to introduce you to this week. And their names are Cole Laskowski and David. So welcome to you both. We had a review of the podcast from a a Paulie Owen uh, from Australia who put, I could listen forever. What a brilliant podcast premise to meander through history from 65 million years ago to our current world. Each episode takes the perfect amount of time to indulge in information whilst keeping it interesting. Chris is a warm, charming host and his passion is infectious. My favourite new podcast. Well, what a what a warm 
and uh, charming review, I must say. Thank you very much, Paulie. And uh, according to the report I received, um, I, uh, I'm pleased to announce that on the 18th of March of 2020, so just this week, just gone, um, the History of the World podcast was the number one uh, Apple Podcasts uh, history podcast uh, in Guatemala. So I'd like to just say thank you to all the Guatemalans that have been listening to the podcast. A, a special shout out to you all. Well, I hope at the very least that this podcast has given you a, a bit of escapism for half an hour. Um, obviously, it's great to get away from the real world and uh, imagine yourself away to another time, another place. And um, if you know someone that is struggling a little bit at the moment and uh, need something to fill their spare time, and let's face it, many people have got a lot of spare time on their hands at the moment, then why not recommend this podcast or indeed any podcast on a subject that they might be interested in? It might just be exactly what they need to help. So uh, do um, recommend podcasts to anyone who you know might be struggling with a bit of spare time on their hands at the moment. And um, hopefully we can uh, introduce them to the History of the World podcast and they will enjoy it. That would be my favourite, of course. So uh, thank you very much, so much for listening this week. And uh, next week, join us again for some Greek uh, culture and uh, something of a bit of a tangent so something to look forward to i believe uh, so join us again this time next week for some more history of the world podcast and uh, look after each other do you want more from the history of the world podcast then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com you can join our discussion forum and find us on social media Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.